You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Alex Rosenberg here from Real Vision with another full audio version of an interview that we release as a video on Real Vision to subscribers. And we're giving you the whole interview for your listening pleasure. And last week, we heard from Dan Tapiero as he sat down with Ralph. This is another crypto-focused interview as Barry Silbert sits down with uh, our CEO and co-founder, Ralph Powell, in an interview that was filmed in early June. Now, what's cool about this interview is that Barry had previously been interviewed on Real Vision a few years before, and in this, in the time since, both the value of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies and the value of his own company have skyrocketed. In, in, in fact, the entire um, the company that Barry Silver runs, DCG or Digital Currency Group, is now worth as much today as the whole asset class was five years ago when they first did that interview. Just Hard to even wrap your head around that kind of growth. But in this conversation, they talk about you know, where, why crypto has been so successful, the kind of bets that Barry has tried to place, and probably more uh, usefully, what Barry sees will be important going forward. So we did film this in early June, released it in mid-June on the platform for our subscribers. But since it is such a long view, both of the past and the future, still a lot of really useful nuggets for you to take away from this interview where Ralph Powell sits down with DCG founder, Barry Silbert. Barry, good to get you back. We figured out just now that it was, what, December... 2014, December 11th, December 14th. Wow, so it's a long time ago. Because we've, as you know, we've been massively big supporters of crypto, blockchain, the whole thing. And you were really kind of almost our entry into that world. That's right. You guys, I think, had just launched, right? Exactly, three months prior. Yeah. And so where was Bitcoin then? Uh, 350 or so. And where's it today? Uh, about 8,000. <laughs> <laughs> so I got to rewatch the interview, and uh, I guess uh, we'll do a victory lap right now and say I was probably pretty right. <laughs> yeah, I think you can say that. And that's with a huge spike up and a huge drop as well, and it's still been very right. I really was. I really wanted to get you back just to pick your brains to find out where we are. You know, this is we're all on this journey, and it's a it's a long journey. We kind of think we know where we're going, but we don't really know. So let's start with where you think the journey's going, and then we'll kind of back up to where we are now right. and the kind of stuff that you're looking at. Right. Well, so um, 
I think, uh, well, let's let's go back the, for the past, uh, I guess, four and a half years. So um, in 2014, um, I would imagine kind of the asset class was probably only worth a couple billion dollars. Uh, today, Bitcoin is, I think, worth about 125 billion. Um, I would imagine that there were only a handful of exchanges. In fact, your investment trust is worth two, now two billion, the same yeah, size as, as the entire trust. Bitcoin market. <laughs> Indeed, um, yeah, that's true. Um, and uh, well done you. yeah, yeah, good to be first mover, I guess. <laughs> um, yeah, so there were probably only a handful of exchanges that you could trade off of. Uh, there was no institutional involvement in the space um, when you know Bitcoin, you know, was discussed on um, you know kind of popular media. It was always described as you know tulip bubble Ponzi scheme. So still quite a bit of that, I guess. And then you know you fast forward, and to, it was also the criminal element. It was always you know oh, it's, yeah, it's the currency of criminals. Silk Road probably yeah, I guess Silk Road probably existed at that point, and yeah. there was this perception that Bitcoin was only only used you know by uh, by criminals. And so you know fast forward to today, it's it's just it's it's different. I think. It's, I think the asset class, like the asset class is here to stay. The asset class as defined as um, digital assets, um, which would include both digital currencies and these and these kind of token investments. So the asset class is here to stay. Um, I think it's um, now being looked at as potentially uh, a, 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 an important part of a diversified portfolio. Um, there are uh, thousands of uh, digital currencies and tokens that are out there. Um, most of them, um, and we'll t- I'm sure we'll talk more about, you don't want to touch, but there's thousands of ways to kind of play the asset class. And the infrastructure, the infrastructure, you know, comparing it, you know, then versus today, um, you have custody solutions now, like institutional grade custody solutions. You have trading software. Um, you have, you know, data and analytics. You have fantastic, uh, you know, kind of media editorial coverage. And so um, it's, I think the asset class is really ready for the next phase, which, um, you know, it seems to me is institutional money moving into it. We've seen hedge funds dabbling. We've seen family offices dabbling, but the pension funds and the endowments and the insurance companies and the central banks and all the deep pools of capital haven't really touched the asset class yet. And I think that that's that's next. Do you not think it needs a clearer use case for them? Because there's so much theoretical use case. I mean, you and I were just talking off camera. I mean, everybody we know involved is investing in companies who have use cases. And it's kind of in that dark period of everything's being developed, nothing's really come to market yet. What do you think about the use case for all of this? Or or does it just become a trading asset? So we, uh, as a digital currency group, um, uh, my company, we've invested in 145 companies now. And um, so we're the most active investor in the space. And so we have pretty good visibility um, and insight into kind of what's what's working and what's not working. And I continue to believe um, that the number one use case is speculation right now. And, and, and that is not a bad thing in that, one, like I think Bitcoin is going to... Um, controversial opinion here is going to displace gold over the next couple decades in terms of the role that gold plays in a, in a portfolio. Um, we will come back to that. Yes, I, yeah, I'm sure we will. Um, but, but separate from kind of the story value kind of gold um, play, I think that um, in order for Bitcoin and digital currency to provide the utility that people are excited about from a, a cross-border payment perspective, remittance perspective, you know, all of the um, all the uh, all the um, um, uh, friction that could be eliminated by the 
free movement of money around the world, it, it's not possible unless the asset class, the size of the asset class is larger, unless there's more volume and velocity in the on-ramps, the off-ramps. So initially, the number one use case is speculation. As the market cap grows, you have more, more liquidity going in and out of different fiat currencies, and eventually you'll have the ability to operate you know, as an individual or as a, or as a business exclusively in Bitcoin and digital currency and completely eliminate or bypass the middleman and all the friction and all the cost. But none of that becomes possible. You don't you can't you can't create a better financial system that eliminates all the friction and middlemen when you only have a hundred and twenty five billion dollar asset class that trades five billion dollars a day. It's just not big so, enough. So and that's an interesting point. So you think that that speculation is one of the good ways to build the col- it's the only way it's the enabler it's the you it's the flywheel effect you it has to grow in value and as it grows in value it becomes more interesting as a tradable asset and as it becomes more interesting as a tradable asset you get the derivatives and you get the futures and you get the infrastructure and then you have the liquidity but the argument is is what are you trading then i mean, i guess the answer is you're trading a future operability or something you know you're trading the future use Case. Well, it was really kind of two, it's two things. One is if you if you buy into my hypothesis that Bitcoin is going to displace gold, mm-hmm. so you're trading into an opportunity. So there's eight trillion of gold, and then there's 125 billion of Bitcoin. So that's one play. And the other is is you're you're betting on the innovation. You're betting on the technology. You're betting on the community. You're betting on this new financial system that is going to get built over the next couple of decades. And that that investment thesis is a little. It's a it's a different analysis. The gold analysis is okay. What is the probability that it captures some of eight trillion? You know, and then you you discount that back, and you say, okay, it's you know, it's gonna five percent chance it's gonna happen that it's gonna capture twenty five percent. You could do the math; it's still a big number. Whereas if Bitcoin becomes the new finite, the the underpinnings of the new financial system. Um, all of the value that gets tied up in Bitcoin as it's moving around the pipes, it's kind of like a, it's like a working capital analysis. And so if there's five or 10 or $100 billion tied up in the Bitcoin system as it's being used for all these use cases, you can make some assumption as to what the value of the asset class would, would be at that point. And that's not even in, you know, valuing the, the blockchain use cases, you know, using the database for, you know, recording ownership around, you know, uh, digital rights and identity and all the crazy ideas that uh, we've invested in and you've heard about. So can you think of, therefore, of Bitcoin, it, thinking through your, your idea with gold and other areas is you need to think of it in terms of option value. What is the probability of it ending up replacing gold and then trying to impute that? My guess is you could probably apply some sort of option pricing model and come up with some fair value, whatever that means. Right, and and you know the small changes in your assumptions have a pretty meaningful impact on the, on the on the outcome. And look, and that's why you know that's why Bitcoin will move up or down five or ten percent in a week because the very small changes in money flows, very small changes in perception, changes you know kind of the probability of the that ultimate ultimate outcome. And so again, with gold as the as the in my opinion, kind of the number one uh, use case, um, 
or digital gold, um, eight trillion relative to 125 billion. I mean, for you to uh, you know double your money in gold over the next couple decades, it's essentially a, it's a it's a bet against the dollar. I mean, it's a bet against kind of fiat currency. It's certainly, my belief that Bitcoin would perform well in that environment, but but really more importantly, if the world doesn't fall apart and if the value of fiat and the U.S. dollar doesn't collapse. Bitcoin could and should still perform really, really well because you're investing in this new financial system, this technology, this community, this 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 restructuring and rebuilding of the way that value moves around the world. And gold is gold is never going to have more utility. It's never going to. It's it's just going to or not be perceived as this store of value that you put in your portfolio that would perform well in periods of financial dislocation. You know, there's there used to be used to be, um, people used to trade the gold-silver ratio for a long time. And one of the reasons why silver often outperforms in certain times is because it has two two values. One is the precious metal value, and the other is the industrial value, because people use silver for a lot of stuff. And if you kind of think of Bitcoin in the same way, Absolutely. it should hyper-outperform in that kind of magic scenario of devaluation of fiat currency, which probably at the end of the next recession we're going to see some format of, but also it has to price in the optionality of the future financial system, which as you go into a recession and you get to more extreme monetary policy, the probability explodes of having to choose a different outcome. That's a super smart way to look at it. That's absolutely right, absolutely right. Because you know, one of the things I've been looking at just to, to cross our two worlds over is the Japanese now own most of their government debt. In the next recession, they'll probably own all of it, which is a debt jubilee. So what happens to the Japanese yen probably collapses. Right. Stock market probably goes to the moon because all the debt's gone. But well, I don't really know what that world is, but clearly it's been happening since biblical times, this kind of debt jubilee stuff. But in that environment, you kind of think that Bitcoin has its proof. That is the kind of environment that it is absolutely there for, because at the end of that, there's going to be a huge distrust in financial system, what asset is what, how can you just write off assets, and, right. and having blockchain and kind of the registration of assets and the storage of that data means that you actually get to own your stuff. Right. And, and there's been a little tastes of how Bitcoin may perform in, in um, you know, I, I guess kind of smaller examples. So Brexit, Bitcoin went up. Cyprus, Bitcoin went up. Grexit, Bitcoin went up. Um, China now. China, yeah. I mean, look at the past couple months, Bitcoin went up. And there's certainly plenty of examples where Bitcoin did, did not go up when certain things happened. You know, but, it, but it's interesting. You know, if you kind of think about, um, you know, a, there's an interesting generational wealth shift that's happening that I think um, many investors don't take the time to think about or analyze. And so, the, um, so the numbers that I saw, there's $68 trillion of wealth that will be handed down in the U.S. alone over the next 25 years. So $68 trillion. So the question is, as that value gets handed down from you know, boomers to Generation X and Y and millennials, <clears throat> where's that money going to go? I would, um, I would posit certainly that whatever it is in gold, that percentage is not going to stay in gold. Younger generation investors do not view gold the same way that my parents or grandparents did. You know, I, I, I grew up, we weren't on the gold standard. I grew up in a period of time where we weren't in war and have to worry about kind of hiding value from, from the bad guys. And so, um, 
you know, of of the sixty eight trillion whatever it is is in gold, you know, is it is it is it going to all go to Bitcoin? No, of course not. It'll go into Fang stocks and it'll go into Uber and things like that. But I, I do think that uh, younger generation investors, generation investors, are open to the idea that what they have been told or the parents have been told about the role that gold will play in a portfolio may not be right for the next couple of decades. And if you look at the biggest buyers of gold recently, who are the biggest buyers of gold right now? Central banks? Central banks. So what's interesting is gold bugs love to um, um, talk about how, how central banks are idiots. Central bankers are idiots. They don't, they, they, fiscal monetary policy, they don't know what they're doing. Yet, they, then they run around and talk about how smart they are for buying gold. Over the past five years, the, the, the largest increase in demand for gold has come from central banks. Well, you know, when, when the stuff does hit the fan, what do those central banks do with their gold? Do they keep on accumulating or are they forced sellers? Not even forced sellers. Are they going to use that, 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 that value to prop up a currency? Or, you know, I, I, would, I, would, I would guess that they're going to sell off their gold before they start selling off their ports and their airports and things like that. Okay, so that if the central bank demand disappears, um, we know in periods of recession and, and depression that people will sell their gold um, you know, to, to buy food and fund their lifestyles. And from an industrial use perspective, what's... what's I, I didn't appreciate this until we launched this uh, this drop gold campaign. The use of gold in electronics is down 30% over the past 10 years. Down 30%. So sale of smartphones are up like 5 or 10x and tablets. and So electronics are up hundreds of percent, yet the use of gold in electronics is down 30%. So the demand for gold is basically jewelry and it's central banks. What happens when the economy turns down? I just don't see where the buyer comes from. Yeah, although I wouldn't even I wouldn't even have the argument about gold. Let's say gold is a fixed value. Okay, mm-hmm. let's assume that it is. The argument, I think the better argument is what is the value of cryptocurrency in that environment? And I think the generational thing, I did a piece about the pension crisis. Mm-hmm. So I think part of that 68 trillion is going to get absolutely obliterated in the next recession because Baby boomers are forced sellers before they even divest their assets to their kids. Right. They're going to be forced sellers because they need to realize some liquidity to retire on. Well, it's just the standard retirement process. And I think that that kind of definancialization that we're going to see part of is going to put that younger generation even further away from public markets and all the stuff that we kind of grew up with. Right. And I think they're much more comfortable with private markets. I think the VC world and the P world and then the crypto world, the three worlds they, they kind of feel are more quantifiable and understandable to them. Right, and, and it's also much more accessible. If you think about um, you know, investing in private company stock, you have to be a you know, high net worth investor. Um, and you typically only get access to kind of you know, deal flow that's kind of local to you. Where with this new asset class and these thousands of protocols and tokens and you know, different, different plays on the kind of the, the, the digital currency um, asset class, it's global and it's accessible to anybody who has a mobile phone. And that's exciting. And also, if you think about the, the, the set of opportunities the baby boomers had when they were in their 20s, right? They had the whole demographic wave in front of them and they had equities by 1982 were a P of seven in the S&P. They had interest rates at 15, 16%. So they had the best setup in history to accumulate wealth, right? Nobody's ever been given that before. You cut to the millennial now, they've got the most expensive stock market in all history. They've got a bond market that yields nothing. They've got real estate that is incredibly expensive that they can't buy. 
they have the absolute inverse of what the baby boomers have. Right. They have one thing, and that is crypto. Right. Right. If there's one thing on a 30-year pension retirement horizon that has the probability of going to a huge number, it's this area. Right. That's the way I think of it. Right. Yes, there's a whole bunch of other investments, and you could do VC and stuff like that. But if there's one option bet that could pay off the thousand X, it's this. Right. Right. And so if you're a millennial, you forget gold because, yes, sure, gold may double. It may double again, but it's right. not going to have the same performance over time that cryptocurrency could right. if you get the right bets. Right. So that's, yeah, that's, how I'm kind of, that's how I'm kind of thinking of it. So when you're looking at the investments in your portfolio, the companies you're investing in, talk to me about that landscape. Who, who's doing what? Where, where, where is this going? What kind of applications? So uh, when I started doing um, <clears throat> investing in the space, um, this would have been in 2012. There were like literally five companies you could actually invest in. I mean, there was there were, there were not thousands of companies to invest in, and and so you know that was I got I invested in Coinbase and I invested in Ripple and invested in uh, BitPay and some of the companies that have gone on to be the leaders in the space. And then um, I've had a few, I guess. Uh, um, I guess, you know, theses over time. And so for a while I was investing in exchanges and so invested in 20 exchanges around the world. And so the hypothesis was that the the dominant exchanges in any given geography or market were going to be um, not a global exchange. It was going to be whoever had the best banking and regulatory relationships locally. And so we invested in 20 exchanges and the consolidation has started. Then we started investing in um, in um, companies that were using blockchain for non-financial use cases, things like identity and uh, uh, provenance and supply chain and um, digital rights and things like that. A lot of a uh, lot of proof of concepts, a lot of consulting type revenue, but there are still very few kind of breakout examples mm-hmm. of um, how blockchain, you know, can or will be used. Um, um, for non, you know, kind of not speculative, non-financial use cases. I'm still very excited about it, but um, a good look. The reality is, a lot of the use cases that people have identified, they're just as well served with just a database, a shared database. You know, so introducing the idea of a decentralized blockchain, especially one with a token, kind of slows down and complicates um, um, the, the the proposition a bit. Then we started investing um, in uh, infrastructure around trading, so compliance software and trading software and data business. Businesses. And those are starting to gain traction now because as there's just growing demand for the asset class, um, investors are just looking for lots of information. And then I guess a recent area that we've gotten pretty excited about were applications around gaming. This is the one thing I wanted to talk to you about. Yeah, because um, you know, there's this... There seems to be leading the way. In many respects, well, digitization. It, yeah, it's it's interesting. I think um, you know clearly, you know, gaming and e-gaming is a is a is a is an enormous uh, trend in the world today. Um, and you know, the younger generation of, of of consumers are comfortable spending a lot of their time in uh, in gaming. And uh, and so, what what a blockchain enables you to do is create something that's called a, a non fungible token, an NFT, which is essentially. Um, Recording ownership of a digital asset in a blockchain. Um, so think of it as you know uh, a sword in a game or gold in a game or whatever is you know kind of the the value, and then being able to monetize that or use it kind of cross games. So there's um, there's a lot of um, you know interesting businesses that are starting to you know because um, this feels sorry this feels yeah. really tangible. I know it's not to us because we're not we didn't grow up in gaming culture in the same way. Yeah. 
But seeing young people, I mean, this is a hugely tangible thing. A digital asset is a real asset to many, many people. Yeah, it is. And the question really is, are the game publishers going to be okay with this? Because, you know, they make a lot of their money by selling, you know, upgrades and things within their game. And they don't want that value to be transferred, They're kind of like airline miles. So, so one of the areas that uh, we have invested heavily, uh, one of the projects we invested heavily in, is that, this is going to make your head spin, um, is uh, <laughs> something called uh, Decentraland. So Decentraland is a virtual world. It's a, it's a metaverse. Um, and it's a play on our hypothesis that in the future, people are going to spend more time in a virtual world, and that virtual world will, like, will likely be, you know, kind of VR, like, you know, goggles. And so Decentraland is is similar in concept to, if you remember Second Life? Yeah. Okay. So um, with a few key differences. Number one, um, the land in Decentraland is ownable. So every parcel of land you can buy and you can speculate on the land, you can build on land, you can lease out the land. Um, number is one. it not infinite? So it's not. It's it's okay. it's it's the, it's the supply is capped, and so that's the other big difference with Second Life. Second Life was infinite, and it was a little. It was a little, if you ever kind of I logged in a few times, and it's kind of it was overwhelming. It was there was no urban planning, and and so Decentraland is a it's a it's a it's a grid the size of basically Washington D.C. So it has you can own the land, um, and then there's an in-world currency called Mana M A N A that is tradable like any other digital currency. And so we have invested in Mana, we've invested in land, and then we started investing in businesses that are being built within Decentraland. We invested in a, in a company kind of building tools um, to, uh, for people to navigate the world. We invested in, uh, you know, we're looking at a media, there's a media business in Decentraland. Uh, there's a there's a, a Vegas district, and so we invested in the Vegas district uh, to help support the growth of that district. And so the hypothesis here is, if a metaverse is going to exist, if the Ready Player World, Ready Player One world is going to exist, it can't be owned by a company. It shouldn't be owned by Google or Facebook or Apple, number one. Two is it is a platform for discovery, meaning um, if you want to go ride a roller coaster in the virtual world, I don't think that you're going to go to your computer and say, show me a roller coasters in VR. You'll put your goggles on, you'll drop into the world, and there'll be an AI avatar that will show you the way to the roller coasters within the virtual world. So the opportunity for landowners to monetize their land is really interesting. There's, there's an advertising play there. You, know, there's a, you can have a whole advertising network within Decentraland. And, 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 I mean, even though it sounds extraordinary, if you just step back to stuff like um, some of the computer games from the 90s and early 2000s, music sold, they sold huge amounts of music right. on the radio stations and stuff like that, you know? Yep. There was huge hits made and huge revenue streams paid to a bunch of people by stuff in the digital world that crossed into the real world. And just to give you an example about this is I... I didn't know how to navigate this thought process. I think uh, Mike Novogratz had mentioned this to me as well. And I didn't understand this. And then I went to a friend's house, one of my oldest friends in the world, and it was a Friday night. And his son was in, in a room like this, a glass room, which was their TV room. But he doesn't watch TV any longer. He was playing... Fortnite. Fortnite. Yep. And he had his headphones on. And I'm like, what's he doing? He's on his own. It's a Friday night. He's like, no, no, he's not on his own. He's with 30 friends. And this is what they do, is they get together online and they're, they're crossing the two worlds of the virtual world and the real world. So like I used to hang out with my friends at the shopping mall or whatever it was or on the street on bikes. They don't do that, they do it online. Exactly. 
the, these digital things have real value to them because they are part of that crossover of digital and real life. Once I saw that, I said, but what about, you know, does he not get outside? Said, of course he does. He plays football with his friends and does all the normal stuff. But this is how they kind of hang out together. And it's actually made it easier because he's hanging out. There's a friend of his from America and there's a friend of his who lives in you know, a different part of England and they can all hang out together. I'm like... Get it. And wait until they have some discretionary income, and they can start buying things. Which and, he's doing already, right? Because his right. dad, you know, he's giving him some money or yeah. pocket money or whatever, yeah. Yeah. mows the lawn, and before you know it, he buys something as a digital asset. And this is why Decentraland is so exciting because people are building, they're building houses and castles, they're building, you know, for for vanity and for ego purposes, they're they're building in this world, and and they're now able to buy and own and display. Um, with these NFTs that they're now buying outside of Decentraland. They're bringing it into Decentraland. And so all of the gaming applications that are being built where there's an NFT component, Decentraland could be the place where you go. There's, the marketplaces are now popping up, so you can kind of go into Decentraland and, and, and buy and sell goods for various games that are being built on top of blockchain. It's a big idea. It's a really big idea. It is, and I don't think it'll stick with just gaming. I think there'll be whole parts of our business world and other worlds that, even the scientific world, that will end up being digital. Right, right. Well, and you part own of in it. Well, part of Decentraland, um, so there's this Vegas district, there's a university district, and so there's now universities that are now exploring how they can, um, you know, engage and educate, you know, in a virtual um, world. What is the NAV of this of this new land? Uh, it? It's it's relatively small. The value of the mana in circulation is probably about 100 million dollars and the land so it's um, not even priced at the price of a of a high quality game so right 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 just yeah. just think of it in those terms yeah, right right if, if you just think it's nothing but a game but quite a good game it's still cheap because a good yeah. game like grand theft auto is worth a billion dollars plus i i think decentraland could be as big as google it's a pla it's a platform play it's a platform play wow wow okay so that's another question I want to come on to, is Google and Facebook now moving into crypto and privacy. You know, I'm very interested in Tim Berners-Lee's new internet, and there's a whole world where I think the internet, blockchain, the whole lot have to mix, because we need to own our own data as humans and be able to decide whether we sell it or not to others. Because basically, things move so fast in 10 years with Facebook and all of these platforms, that we didn't know what was happening. And now everyone's kind of figuring it out and you can just see the DOJ are about to get involved and right. they're all gonna get broken up in the end because they've got way too much power and particularly way too much data of which they own and we don't. So what do you think about that and how's this whole world gonna play out? Because I think this is enormous. And so uh, the next investment thesis that um, we have been focusing on, we're focusing on right now is actually is privacy. From an investment perspective, um, we've invested, uh, there's, there's only five digital currencies out of the thousands out there that we're excited about that we invest in. It's Bitcoin, uh, it's Ethereum Classic, uh, it's Mana, uh, as we talked about, and then there's two privacy-focused projects. One's called Zcash, 
which is basically private money, and then something called Horizon, and the token is called Zen, Z-E-N. And Horizon is interesting because it's a platform for privacy-focused applications. So it's private money, it's private file sharing, it's private messaging, it's private internet access. So Horizon um, is, is, is something I'm really excited about because I think it's going to play right into this important narrative which is, um, you know, people are, they, they're going to want to own their information. They're going to want privacy as it relates to communication and financial transactions. But look, it's going to be, um, it's going to be a, uh, I think, a challenging road for any of these privacy-focused protocols because as they have success, there'll be quite a bit of pushback, you know, from kind of regulators and law enforcement um, and, and stakeholders like that. But look, I, I ultimately, I do think that um, people, while they do value privacy, they also value Free Facebook, free Google, and you know, f- you know, free free use of all of these different products and services. So I'm not really sure, you know, how you uh, address the the monetization uh, question for these platforms um, if you start taking away from them the information that they have access to and that they've been selling. So how do you think about this world that that's now coming to light? And there's two parts I'm interested in. Is one is how do you deal with all these currencies? What kind of research platforms do you need? Because people don't really know the relative value of one versus the other, which is why it's so volatile. That's interesting. And then trying to figure out the world of all of these forks, you know, I'm not sure what the value proposition is in terms of how do you keep hold of a value of something when it keeps bloody changing? So, so there's the two, yeah, two well, parts. So I think on the, like, on the question of forks and the proliferation of all these different tokens and projects, I kind of view it like it's Darwinism of, of money and value. And, and ultimately, it'll be survival of the fittest. And as these various projects, and I think I think the, the idea of kind of, I think forking is, I think, becoming less, less common because there were a few forks that everybody won. And then there's been some more recent forks where everybody's kind of lost. So I, I do think that um, um, uh, it's actually a good thing to see these projects splinter because whatever is the survivor, if any of them survive, it means that it's been tested. It means it's been challenged. And these, for any of these protocols or tokens to have value longer term, they have to they have to be challenged. But that's a hard trading environment. Well, of course, of course, of course. Yeah, well, this is why we only own five ahead of, uh, or have any meaningful amount of money in, in five out of the thousands. Because you are actually having to ask individual investors to become option investors because many of these things go to zero yeah. and some make infinite wealth, right? Well, the, uh, the last fund, um, so Grayscale, uh, our asset management business, we have 10 funds. And so nine of them are you know, the Bitcoin Trust and the Ethereum Trust and Ethereum Classic Trust. The 10th one is a, is a large cap fund um, that invests across, basically, it's designed to cover the top 70% market cap of the asset class. And essentially, it rebalances every quarter. So it's, 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 we've positioned it, and I think it's been well-received as kind of the first investment people can make in the space, because you don't have to try to pick winners. Basically, you know, the bet is, is okay, if this asset class today is worth $250 billion, Like an index fund. It, exactly, exactly. So it rebounds every quarter, you know, you set it and you forget it. You know, your, your bet is that the asset class grows from $250 billion to $2 trillion, and if that happens, then, you know, you'll make a good return. And so if there is this trading and speculative community that's necessary for the future of this, then something we just mentioned briefly is like, there is no research. There's no research. Uh, well, actually, does anybody know I, I, what, 
everyone's going to torch their money if they're not careful, unless somebody applies some intelligent framework around it. Well, yeah, actually, let me let me let me uh, rephrase that. There actually is a lot of research. There's a lot of commentary. There's a lot of data analysis, but there's not yet an opportunity for paid research because the market's not big enough. And so, I think the um, I think not just the kind of the quality, but the thoroughness that you see in other asset class research does not yet exist. But there, are, there is, I think there's absolutely some really thoughtful analysis out there and approaches to kind of the way to kind of value these different protocols and these different assets. But it's still very, it's a, it's a, it's a nascent asset class. And so, um, you know, some people will look at the cost of mining as, you know, as having some input or, 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 fa- or uh, impact on the price of Bitcoin. Some will look at the number of active wallet addresses. Some will look at um, the number of, you know, dApps, decentralized applications on a protocol. These are all interesting inputs. Are any of them kind of leading indicators? I, I, I really don't know. Our investment strategy is we don't, we don't short, we don't lever, we don't trade, we invest. And then we do everything we can to create awareness and drive utility for these protocols. And these investments, for, we'll have these for, for 10 years plus. But I'm guessing that there's also a group of people, I'm guessing people like Virtue and Citadel and everybody are starting to get involved in algorithmic trading, machine learning, and that whole space. There is, and I, and I think for, there's always been money to be made in the digital currency space doing, you know, kind of cross exchange arbitrage, but the, 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 the challenge has always been you didn't want to leave money on the exchanges because um, you know while you could make a really good return with these arbitrages, you wake up one day and the exchange is hacked or the exchange is you know cut off you know kind of you know withdrawals or deposits. Um, but I think that that's changing. I think over the next couple of years, as the kind of the the well-run, well-capitalized, in many cases regulated exchanges kind of emerge from the pack, I think you'll start seeing more opportunities around sort of cross-exchange arbitrage. And then now we're starting to see kind of the quants come in and the algorithm traders kind of come in and build their models and, you know, back test. And yeah, I, I'm definitely aware of kind of people um, making money in the space, but it's also just, it's not been big enough yet, no. you know, for, for, for the real players to care. But we're getting there. And how do we stamp out the bad actors? I mean, I don't know where you stand you do, on the Bitfinex and the Tether thing. And there's a whole bunch of things that, well, how do you define a bad actor? I don't know. Yeah. There's too much, I guess my financial market background says, I'd rather not let too many people who don't know much lose too much money. Right. You know, being taken advantage of. That, that, you know, there was a bunch of ICOs that were basically taking advantage of people. And, you know, yes, I like the technology, I like the idea, but, you know, to literally steal money from people, I just think is wrong. So I, I, um, I agree with you. Uh, philosophically, though, I also, I also think that at least in the U.S., um, our capital formation process um, is, um, I wouldn't say it's broken. And we talked a little bit before about the way the public markets have changed. But, you know, today, there's half the number of public companies than there were, you know, kind of a decade ago. And you have to be, you have to be a much larger company to you know, be able to access the public market. And so I think the challenge that the SEC has had is, um, you know, how do you do exactly what you're talking about? How do you kind of protect investors? Um, how do you support capital formation in the public markets while um, trying to, um, you know, uh, use the 33 and 34 Act or apply 33 and 34 Act type rules? 
to an asset class in an environment that certainly was not uh, in anybody's uh, mind um, 70 years ago. And, and it's hard. And so, you know, what's happening now is you're seeing some interesting experimentation um, happening outside of the U.S. And there's certainly a risk that that experimentation um, results in some important projects and products and businesses that are built outside the U.S. And f- so from like a financial capital world perspective, there is a risk that that's going to move offshore out of the U.S. So I don't know. I mean, ultimately, it's, it's, it's a... But that's it, a balancing I, act, right? That's, that's what it's I was the say. same with um, bioengineering. There's a, there's a balancing act between what do you allow that your society will take, right? So massive fraud... In an unregulated world, massive fraud will also equal massive innovation. You know, and that balances. But you know, as a government, you have to choose where you are on that equation. Right. And it's the same with you know, biotechnologies. You know, how much human cloning will you allow? Right. Right. Or at what point? Right. Yeah, it, it, it's a complicated world. So how do you see... So we've had a big run-up in the price of Bitcoin in the last couple of months. Maybe it's China-related. I don't know. Do you have any A view why it's, why it's done this? So, you know, just out of the blue... And secondly, what is your kind of thought process over the next 12 months? I think um, there's a few things that contributed to the price run-up. Uh, one is, um, I think just from a, from a technical perspective, from a chart perspective, you kind of look at what happened. You know, you had the, the blow off top, you had the you know, kind of the consolidation of the bottom, you know, volume dried up, volume started increasing, price started going up, started taking out some resistance, and all of a sudden, you know, you're kind of off to the races. And I think because Bitcoin has now gone through five or six 80% drawdowns only to hit all-time highs after each one. I think people who've been in the space as, as long as I have and others, we, we just view what happened as a buying opportunity. And because the thesis hasn't changed. In fact, it's only become stronger. So I think, uh, you know, if, if history, you know, uh, repeats, which it doesn't always, but if it does, you would expect that the, you know, the all-time high of 20,000 will be taking out, taken out in this next run. Um, well, whether, well, we don't know if this is the run. It could go down to... 2,000 and then go up to... True, but it, I think if you look at the past four or five times that it's done this, it, 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 the chart looks similar. Similar. Similar um, log scale. I, I was looking at that the other day. Yeah, yeah. So um, so I think that, that that was a contributor. I think the China talk was a contributor. I, look, I think our drop gold, we, did a, we, we started a national ad campaign. Um, so we now actually have television commercials that are, look, it's, it's very much intended to be a provocative around gold, but it is indirectly, or fairly directly, I guess, a, a commercial for Bitcoin. So I think that, that if you look at, we launched on May 1st, the price of Bitcoin on May 1st was around 5,000, today's 8,000. So, you know, I think maybe we created a little bit of a uh, little, t- little tailwind. And then I think what's going to, over the next 12 months, the, the catalysts for further upward price movements are number one, Fidelity is going to be launching their um, trading solution. Their um, uh, the ICE and Bact are launching their trading solution. Rumors of TD Ameritrade making Bitcoin accessible on their platform. So you have on ramps that are about to be launched. And then most importantly, uh, that very few people are talking about is the next Bitcoin having. So um, many people, even though even though the ones who are invested in Bitcoin don't know what the Bitcoin having is, and so this is so. Here's a quick tutorial. Bitcoin uh, is created through this process called mining. Um, on average, every 10 minutes, a, a certain amount of Bitcoin is created and issued to the miners. Uh, when Bitcoin was launched um, uh, in 2009, um, it was 50 Bitcoin um, issued every 10 minutes on average. 
roughly every four years, based on the way the code is written, that reward goes down in half. And so if you look at, it's basically kind of the inflation rate of Bitcoin goes down in half. So this is the difficulty rate of mining? It's not the difficulty rate, it is the reward. So uh, the difficulty right, rate yes. continues to go up, but but uh, and, 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 and the re- Bitcoin recalibrates so that it stays basically on this 10 minute kind of creation schedule. So every four years, the inflation rate goes down in half. So the next Bitcoin halving um, is estimated to be May 2020. So roughly a year from now. If you're an efficient market guy, you would say it's already priced in. Um, yet the past, the, the last two Bitcoin halvings that have happened, um, after the Bitcoin price or the, 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 the reward halved, the price of Bitcoin went up somewhere like five or 10x. So the question is, is, is it priced in? I don't think it's priced in because when I talk to people who invest in Bitcoin, most of them haven't even heard of it. And so that if it's not priced in, the question is, when does it get priced in? When do people start thinking about talking about the Bitcoin halving event? Um, my guess is it'll certainly be in 2019. People are not going to wait to 2020 and start talking about it. And I think I think a lot of what is starting to happen right now is kind of the, the smart money, the early Bitcoin folks know that that's going to be the narrative going into 2020. So they're, they're getting involved in, in, in Bitcoin before it starts becoming the story as to why you want to get in Bitcoin before the, the, the having happens in, in 2020. So in essence, your 12-month view is Bitcoin significantly higher. I reluctantly say yes. Um, yeah, it's a, uh, it's a very volatile <laughs> market. I'm not going to hold it under your head, right? Yes. But, um, and, and what do you think, the, the final question, the Bitcoin gold thing begs the question, what do you think the final value of Bitcoin is in relation to gold? Over what time frame? Well, if you were to value, because I remember I did, I wrote this article a long time ago about trying to value. And you put a million, million dollars a Bitcoin, yeah. right? Does yeah. that still stand up? Well, I, well, so it does, except for in that environment, a million dollars doesn't really have much meaning because of the value of the dollar not being, you know, from purchasing power perspective, a million dollars today. So then do so, you look at it as a ratio between gold and Bitcoin? Well, yes, but I, I absolutely believe that over the long term, um, multi-decade, I just think that gold is, I, you know, it's, it's a, look, it's a, it's a fairly controversial position to have, but I just think that, I think gold has had its day and I think that Bitcoin in particular is going to displace it over, over multiple decades. And that's uh, I'm probably one of the only people that thinks that, but I do believe that that is, that this is the high probability that's going to happen. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't disagree, but I also think that you don't necessarily need to take that bet. Well, of you course, can take both. Of course, absolutely, absolutely. You know, absolutely. A world of both gives you that balance. And I'm no particular gold bug. In fact, I'm much more bullish on cryptocurrency over time than I am, than I am on gold. I think the problem, though, is t- uh, uh, taking the bet on both. Like you're, you're, you're hedging the Bitcoin bet, but I just think that if Bitcoin has that level of success, gold, there's just not, a, there's not a, the gold will not, will no longer serve its purpose. And ultimately, look, it's, it's pretty for jewelry. It's replaceable from the electronics perspective. So if, if there's a perception that gold is not going to do what it's supposed to do in your portfolio, it's going to lose favor. I'm just thinking, my God, the gold community is going to hate you. And we've got quite a few on Real Vision. It's going to make me laugh. To look, look at the comment section. The outrage will be palpable. So, All right. But I'm ready. Yeah, good. Barry, thank you. As Great ever, a you. real, real pleasure to sit down with you. And let's see how this all plays out in the next coming year or so. And we'll get you back again soon. Look forward to it. Thanks. Brilliant.
a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.